And last year, 34 years later, when I was watching the final, uh, Federer winning the final, seated right next to the Royal Box with Deborah, who's here with me tonight, uh, she asked me how I felt. And this is how I answered. I said, it's still so vivid as if it were yesterday. This is a place where dreams turned into reality. Playing here in the final against McEnroe was the realization of my dream. Playing on Wimbledon Center Court in front of millions is not just a tennis match, it's a place where you find out about yourself. Welcome to the Kiwi Leaders Podcast. My name is Xavier Walker. I'm your host and president of the Kiwi Leadership Network USA. Very excited to share with you a very special um, podcast today. This is a recording from uh, Chris Lewis at our inaugural event at UCLA uh, in California. Chris Lewis is one of New Zealand's greatest tennis players. He's a 1983 Wimbledon finalist, a former world junior number one and former coach to Ivan Lendl, um, who was world number one as well. Um, Chris has coached many phenomenal people over the course of his career, and he is the current co-founder and co-owner of Brian and Lewis, Lewis Tennis Academy in Irvine, California. So in this talk, you'll hear um, about his phenomenal career, uh, insights, and um, just words of wisdom of how we all can become better. So without further ado, Chris Lewis from UCLA inaugural event for the Kiwi Leadership Network. Firstly, thank you so much for that introduction, Xavier, and for organizing this event tonight. Um, I'd like to thank Murray also for representing the consulate. Uh, it's um, wonderful that you're here. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming this evening. Um, it really is an honor for me to speak to you tonight, and my hope is that by sharing with you some of the lessons uh, I learned from various situations I was in in tennis, that it will have some relevance and some interest in the approach that you're taking with your own careers. Uh, I want to start by telling you how my passion for the sport was first ignited, and that, that spark occurred in Lower Hutt. My parents played tennis, and we lived in a small street, and coincidentally, it backed onto the Lower Hutt Tennis Club. And like every other child in the street, uh, we would gather at the club after school and on weekends. We developed an incredible camaraderie and actually our own little tennis community. And it was that environment, and that's my first message tonight, is how crucial the environment is in forming and shaping your life. Uh, but not only that, the other thing that was interesting, of the five or seven kids, uh, of the seven kids, five of them went on to represent New Zealand internationally. So, I mean, you want to stress the importance of an environment. I didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect, I mean, that's an incredible um, uh, uh, vote of confidence in how important the environment it is. Um, and after establishing that love of the sport, the next logical step for me in the sequence was to actually start competing. And it was Murray mentioned uh, about how competitive it is here in this part of the world. Uh, sport, obviously, the essence of it is competition. And from some quarters, I've heard it criticized that children shouldn't be exposed to it. In my case, uh, I've got to say that just the opposite held true. If I lost, I found it incredibly motivational. Uh, it inspired me to improve. Uh, I wanted to reduce the number of losses in the future and obviously increase the number of wins. And on the other side of that coin with the winning, uh, it was my first introduction to how happy it makes you feel 
when you actually achieve your goals, uh, and, and that is where sport plays a huge role, uh, as it does in life. Um, it also introduced me to adversity for the first time. I had to deal with difficult conditions, difficult opponents, uh, stress and tension, and even though it was on a limited small scale, the principles still are the same. Uh, I learned to deal with it, I didn't run away with it, and uh, it taught me a lot about and preparing me for life in the future. Um, and also too, what it gave rise to was the actual setting of goals. I started thinking about winning local tournaments, I started dedicating a little more time to the tennis, I'd already developed a love for it, and it was uh, two or three years after that love was instilled that the family moved to Auckland, and coincidentally we lived next door to the tennis club as well. And now the environment also, even though it changed, it played an equally uh, important role, but this time I was playing with adults. And when I was nine, I played in my first senior interclub team. My doubles partner was 72 years old. <laughs> I was nine. So, and the point I want to make here is just also how important it is to share common values. When you can bring two people together that are over 60 years apart and genuinely enjoy each other's company, uh, that says a lot about how important values are and taught, uh, sport taught me that. I got a lot to thank Wally for too because he had obviously 60 years more experience than I did and I found out that I knew nothing in comparison to what he knew. Two years later, that was a fourth grade interclub team, two years later at that same club and there were four grades, first, second, third and fourth grade, I actually won the senior club champs. And the lesson learned there was how much you can learn from people who have more experience than you. I took that on board, uh, and he was definitely played a role in my formative years. Um, but also at age 11, it wasn't winning the club champs that was momentous. I made the career life decision when I was 11 to pursue tennis as my professional career. And the reason for it was, there was tennis had just gone professional, and uh, there was a Benson and Hedges Open in Auckland at Stanley Street, and all the best players in the world were competing there. Rod Laver, Tony Roach, uh, Billie Jean King and the woman, you name it, they were there. I think the only one missing was Ken Rosewell, and he was injured or, or something, otherwise he would have been there too. Top two New Zealand players, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the names of Oni Parron and Brian Fairley. Brian actually beat John Newcomb, Roach beat Laver in the final, but it was then that I realised that this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So I already knew, and thanks to Wally, this is a point I want to make, Wally pointed out to me that it was a sport that I could play for a lifetime. It was Roach and Newcomb and Laver and, and these players that pointed out to me that I could actually do it as a career. So now the impact that had on me was instead of thinking about local tournaments, I started thinking about long-term goals. And instead of thinking two or three weeks out, I started thinking 15 or 20 years out. I started thinking about winning Wimbledon and how that would be the ultimate because that's what Labor did and that's what Roach did. I started playing imaginary Wimbledon finals in the backyard. In my mind, I was actually on the centre court at Wimbledon. I wasn't in the backyard and I assumed the identities of the Tony Roaches who ended up actually coaching me. Um, so the, the impact that setting those long-term goals, I cannot stress enough. Um, so now I've got to start thinking about how am I going to get there? And the role that the short-term goals have in relation to the long-term goals, that they go, they've got to be in alignment. Uh, you've got to be going in the same direction with both. 
you got to put time frames in place. Um, if 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 you have a pipe dream, but there's no evidence to support it, then you're in danger of, of ending up, a, you know, a, a very disappointed person. So I started working backwards. If I wanted to win Wimbledon, where did I need to be in the step prior to that? It's in all the way back to where I was as an 11-year-old. And that was a result of looking at Labour and Roach and saying, okay, I'm 11 years old. This is how I'm playing. What do I need to do to get to be as good as those guys? And then I... I Put that into practice, I started dedicating myself in a very single-minded fashion to getting to where I wanted to be. It, was a, it, it gave me clarity, it gave me purpose, uh, it gave me a hierarchy of values. I understood exactly what was important to me and I'd allocate a certain amount of time to that top value each day and then work my way down the list very, very methodically. Um, uh, and also, prior to that week, I thought I was motivated. I found out that I wasn't. Uh, not when I started thinking about what winning Wimbledon required and what winning the Auckland Champs required. Two very different things. Then, um, when I was 15, I started beating the top men in New Zealand. Not the very top men, but men in the top 10. And as a result of that, I was invited to practice with Brian Fairley and Onnie Perrin, two, of, uh, two players of truly international standard. Uh, I'd watched both of them play at that Benson and Hedges Open. And now here's the beginning of this dream becoming actualized. Here I was at the other end of the court. And I started understanding what the requirements are to get to the top. These guys were capable of beating the best in the world. That's no accident. Uh, and, and I started examining what, what those characteristics were. As far as Oni goes, uh, who's familiar with the name Oni Parent? Great, okay. So Oni, Oni was, uh, in tennis there are four categories. There's the mental, there's the physical, there's the technical, and there's the strategic. Oni, I would have to say, would be the toughest competitor that I've ever played, including Mac or anybody on the planet. He wasn't gifted physically. I don't think he would mind me saying that. Uh, he was strategically very sound. Uh, technically, he was, he was ordinary. Uh, but mentally, he was, he's the sort of guy that you would want fighting for your life. He, he actually taught me about mental toughness. I thought I was tough, he taught me that I wasn't. I knew, I, Ani I watched for 30 years, there wasn't one second of anything he did where he didn't give it his best. I, I cannot stress enough just how tough that guy was. I think he, he won the mile in Wellington College and I think it held for years, uh, just through sheer determination. Uh, he played fullback to the Wellington College first 15, I believe, just through sheer determination. Just a bullheaded, just incredibly tough competitor. I got a lot to thank him for. Brian Fairley, also uh, uh, the work ethic that Brian embraced was something I never encountered before. I thought I worked hard, I realized that I wasn't a hard worker compared to somebody like that. So what those two did was they, they also had a huge impact on my life because now I had to examine my approach and then toughen up both physically and mentally and they actually equipped me for the next stage which was to venture over to Europe if I wanted to pursue my career. Uh, so I went to London. Uh, by myself and the first thing I did there when I stepped off the plane was actually go out to Wimbledon. So here I was playing imaginary 
Wimbledon finals in the backyard to now five years later, I was 16, going in through the gates of Wimbledon at the actual venue, five years later. So I felt like I was on track. The next 15 months was real adversity though. Uh, it, was, it was a struggle. You're starting at the very bottom of the professional ladder and like hundreds and hundreds of other players. I was in a foreign country, uh, no support system, uh, facing very, very difficult conditions, no money, uh, a one-way ticket from New Zealand with no return. And it was bed and breakfast places or sleeping in railway stations. It, it was tough. But going back once again to competition, what I've learned from competition is that when you come out the other end of adversity, that it's motivational fuel when you encounter it at any time. Even though the adversity grows, the principles once again remain the same. The bigger the goals, the more the adversity you encounter, uh, but that's to be expected. If it was that easy, everybody would achieve anything they wanted to. Um, but, and, I, and I would start thinking about all these things and then applying what I learned immediately. I wasn't one of these people that sort of make, say to myself in August that I'm going to make a New Year's resolution and I'll wait five months. I would try and make that change the next day. Um, so what, when it comes to goals, um, the, the, the number one thing for me that I found was an unshakable belief in oneself was the number one, and also any decisions that you have to make uh, when you aspire to those goals, at the end of the day you have to make it yourself. And I just want to give you uh, three examples. You, you listen to advice from the people whom you respect, absolutely. But at the end of the day, I, and there were times where I would hear advice that was so sound that I'd have to re-examine everything that I held to be true because I'd be influenced out of those positions uh, and I'd have to reconsider. But then at the end of the day, I would be the one to make that decision. I had to live with the decision. So as far as, as, far as examples of that go, when I was younger and I decided that tennis was going to be what I did, I sacrificed academics to that, so I'd be in the schoolroom and teachers would make fun of me for not doing my homework or not doing this, that or the other. Uh, and I wasn't avoiding it because I didn't want to do it, it was because I had more important things to do. So uh, I ignored that, you know, they were telling me that tennis is statistically, you, you haven't got a, a chance of making it, you should give up, you should study, etc, etc. Uh, if I listened to that, my life would have taken a completely different turn, that's for sure. I ignored it. So that was, you know, what I'm talking about with independent. Uh, thinking. Um, and then uh, there was another uh, instance where I did get to the crossroads where I was deciding whether to become a pro or not. Uh, I was faced with the decision of all places to take a full scholarship here at UCLA. Um, what a coincidence that is here. Right <laughs> it was incredible when, when Xavier told me that we're going to be speaking at UCLA tonight. I couldn't believe it. But it was either that or go straight on the pro tour. Um, once again, I would say the consensus was that I took the scholarship and go to UCLA, as a lot of the top players were doing, and it's a great, it was a great option. I mean, it was a valid, great option, but I wanted to go pro. So I went against the consensus and went pro. Looking back, do I regret it? Not for a second. I think if I'd come here, even if it had been the right decision, and even if hypothetically I would have been a, a better player for it, if I'd been here, I would have resented probably being here because it would have been sacrificing my own judgments to somebody else's. Uh, so I, I've been like that all my life, and I will continue to be that way as well. 
The third thing was, when I reached a stage in my career where I was still in the developmental stages, but good enough to play at the higher levels, uh, I didn't go to the US to play some major tournaments and instead decided to stay in Italy uh, in lower level events because I thought it was going to be the best for my development in the long term. Uh, and there would not have been a single player who agreed with that decision. I was the only English-speaking player on that tour for three months. It was tough. Uh, it was certainly huge motivation to win because if you lost early, the rest of the week was pretty lonely trying to fill in five or six days with not much to do. So I made the decision to play in Italy and then coincidentally two months later I had the best uh, tennis of my life to date where I got to the final of the first major international pro event uh, and I think it was a direct result of that decision to play in Italy. Uh, I think those two were, were inextricably linked. Um, just excuse me one second while I... Oh yeah, the other thing that I wanted to say was that um, when it came to adversity and, and self-motivation is uh, incredibly important and my self-motivation was a direct result of the passion that I felt for what I was doing. It was that passion that allowed me to endure any adversity or any hardship that I had to confront uh, and that was my, that was my uh, fallback position as I would remind myself where I wanted to go in the long term and that was enough. Um, also, uh, it, it's an intrinsic motivation. It's not extrinsic. You, you know, I would listen to some players and they would talk about how they wanted to do it for the financial future or for the status that would get them if they did well. I certainly wasn't like that. Mine was just driven purely by a love of tennis um, and the other things like the finances and uh, the, the status were just absolute byproducts that were so secondary, I, yeah, not, even, not even a competition. Um, so after the adversity initially, about 15 months of it, I came out the other end of that tunnel and I won Junior Wimbledon. That was the, the first major, major um, breakthrough for me on my way up. And what that did was it, it opened up a new world for me. Um, instead of now sleeping in railway stations and things, now it meant financial independence. It gave me a lot more choices. Um, I was recognized as the world's leading junior. Uh, I got a racket clothing and footwear contracts, widespread publicity. But the biggest thing of all, uh, there was a very famous coach, Australian coach, Harry Hopman, who was responsible for the development of all of the top great Australians like Lever, Hode, Rosewell, Roach, just the list goes on and on. He was a tennis genius and he came up to me after the Wimbledon uh, Junior Final and it was about the same day as uh, the, the picture in the Royal Box was taken, it was that very day. He put out his hand and introduced himself and he was like a legend. He was an iconic, legendary figure. And he invited me to his academy in Florida um, and I couldn't get there soon enough. So that, that opportunity uh, was a direct result of the adversity that I'd overcome and reached the heights that I had and now all of a sudden here I've got access to the greatest coach in the history of tennis and arguably still is, uh, just an extraordinary gentleman. I would turn up um, and he, he would, this is the sort of guy he was, he lived next door to a golf course and we'd spend five or six hours on the court each day and then a bunch of us would go running on the golf course, unbeknown to us he'd be out on his balcony 
taking notes of who were the ones doing the running. And it was those people that got the invitation to dinner with Rod Laver when he would visit and with Lou Hode when he would visit. We didn't know it at the time, but here's another uh, comment I'd like to make on opportunity. It seems like an opportunity that is just luck, but when you put the pieces together, it isn't. Everything has a reason, and his reasoning obviously was very sound. He was rewarding the people who went above and beyond to get to where they wanted to get to, and um, that's, I think, a, a, another lesson as well as opportunity. I don't think it's happenstance. It's not serendipity. It's not, it's not something that just is whimsical. It, it has a, its cause and effect. Um, also, the other thing that I was learning too along the way with the goals was that marrying the long term and the short term, after I won Junior Wimbledon, I made what was, looking back, a very big mistake. Um, because it was such a big goal that I achieved, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I rested in my laurels somewhat and became a little overconfident. I, I mentioned getting confident from that win, but I got too confident. So now I was going into matches, not with the same attitude and mindset that I had previously. I was expecting to win just because I'd won that event. And I had a couple of, two or three very poor months as a result. And the lesson in that for me was that goal setting is not a static process, it's a dynamic process. So it's very easy, and that was a lesson that I learned as well, and, and I, I just want to expand on that just for a second. It's very easy to be self-congratulatory and pat yourself on the back and say, I've done it. But life is dynamic, it's never static, and sport is very much like that. It's, um, it's ongoing and there's always something further you can do. So it was Brian Fairley who actually came up to me and he was the one that snapped me back to reality. He said, Chris, it's all well and good that you won Junior Wimbledon, that's great, it's an unbelievable achievement, but it hasn't started yet. And I can still remember those words today ringing in my ears. So it was like, oh my gosh, Brian, you're so right, thank you for that. And then back I went to the grind. Uh, and uh, what, what I did then was I, I, I took the same approach to my professional career that I'd taken all along with that slight blip um, and did well. I was rising up in the rankings, I was doing well financially, uh, life was good, but there was Wimbledon. I'd, made the, I'd won junior Wimbledon and then uh, I'd been on the tour six or seven years uh, and I reached the lowest point of my career. I felt like it wasn't a, almost wasn't a career anymore. I felt like I was holding down a job. Uh, and there's a very distinct difference between those two things. When you are holding down a job, you're not driven by passion, you're in an environment where you don't look forward to being in it. Uh, it, it just isn't the same. With a career, I was out on the court five or six hours a day because I felt that there was progress to be made. That was what was propelling me forwards. And then I got to a point where I found it hard until I started once again thinking about those long-term goals. My ranking had dropped to its lowest ebb in six or seven years. Uh, I got food poisoning at the French Open two or three weeks before Wimbledon, and it was there that I took stock and I said, okay, we're turning this around. Uh, this, is, this is not going to happen. I also would remind myself, okay, this is adversity here. I'm, I'm at a crossroads. Do I quit? What do I do? So I would remind myself of adversity in the past and say, okay, I come out the other end of this, and there's been an ongoing pattern. Every time that I've reached a new low, I've hit a new high. And that seemed to be the ongoing pattern. So 
I started getting out on the court more, working harder, uh, hugely motivated. And then at Queen's, which is a lead-in tournament to Wimbledon, I showed some pretty good form, much better than I showed in the previous six months, which was very hopeful to me. Went into Wimbledon, uh, my first round match against Steve Denton, a seed, a uh, great player. I struggled through and came back from behind in, in that match. Um, also, I think, too, those, those matches where you do come from behind, there's a direct link there between stuff that happens off-court where you fight and you come out the better end of things, and you apply that on-court as well. The two, are, they, they parallel each other, whether it's off-the-court or on-the-court. The principles, once again, are identical. So um, here I am in, in early 83, uh, winning these five-set battles, uh, a market lift in confidence, uh, and uh, I'm on the way. So 15 years now, after playing imaginary Wimbledon finals, now I'm in one. Uh, so when I when I play on that centre court, and I had I had previous experience on the centre court. It wasn't my first time uh, that I played there. Uh, it was it was real to me. It wasn't like a new experience because I and I think too. And this is you know something I've examined in the past. Those imaginary finals. 90% of them were Wimbledon finals. They weren't the US Open finals. They weren't the Australian Open finals. They weren't the French Open finals. They were Wimbledon finals because that was the premier event. And I just wonder whether or not, had I dedicated more time to playing imaginary Australian Open finals, <laughs> yeah, it makes you think. Because I, I think that the two only, I don't think that was any sort of coincidence. I, I felt as though that there was more of a surge at Wimbledon. When I walked through the gates the first time after turning up in London as a 16-year-old and I walked through those gates, it wasn't during the tournament. The courts were empty, but I got goosebumps. It was spine-tingling. That was because of how highly I held it in regard. And then to actually be playing there for the final after winning six matches in a row, confidence was off the charts. I mean, unfortunately, I was playing against a guy who was arguably the best grass court player in tennis history at the time. But I genuinely thought I could win that match for two reasons. I thought that I'd been winning those imaginary finals. I was always the guy that won them. And then I, you know, I felt that I had a genuine chance. And I'd come from this low to now this high and this confidence you couldn't measure. It was amazing. Unfortunately, John felt the same way. But, but still, it, 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 uh, it, it was an incredible feeling. I just also want to make the point, too, that in the players' box... Uh, was Tony Roach, and Tony was the player whom I'd, whose identity I'd assumed in those finals. He was my favourite player. And this is another opportunity, it's another story, but he became my po uh, coach. He was a, a protégé of Hoffman. He was in the box there supporting me. In the semi-final, at match point, I looked up at him and I acknowledged to Tony, I looked at him before I won the match point, looked up at him, nodded and said, this is for you. I wouldn't be here had it not been for, for his input. Uh, and I wouldn't have. Or with Harry Hoffman or Brian Fairley or Ani Perrin, they were all instrumental in my development. Um, they all taught me things I otherwise never would have learned. Uh, so um, I just want to say a word about how it felt after setting these goals in place and now finally arriving at the ultimate goal that you've set 15 years previously. Uh, so I'm in the waiting room with McEnroe. Um, I know him well. We get on fine. Not a word between the two of us. It's deathly silence. 
Um, there's a packed centre court. I'm sort of wondering, is the Queen going to be in the Royal Box today? She was there for the semi-final. It, it, you've got the world sporting press uh, up and down the side of the courts. Uh, you've got, it's, it's actually the world's third most watched sporting event, or it was at the time, between, behind the Olympics and the World Soccer Cup, uh, the World Cup. So it, you're aware of these things, you're aware of the significance and the size of the occasion, and here you are, you're the central player in it. Um, there's a surrealness about it. Everything happened in slow motion. Just walking out onto the court and the warm-up, it was like it was in slow motion. And it's like almost like you're an observer watching yourself play. It's that tangible, it's that real. Um, spine tickling walking out, thinking about it still gives me goosebumps. Um, and this was made all the hardship and the struggles and the overcoming of adversity worthwhile. I didn't win, but there was an enormous pride in what I achieved, namely one match away from reaching my ultimate goal of winning the world's greatest tennis tournament. And last year, 34 years later, when I was watching the final, uh, Federer winning the final, seated right next to the Royal Box with Deborah, who's here with me tonight, uh, she asked me how I felt, and this is how I answered. I said, it's still so vivid as if it were yesterday. This is a place where dreams turned into reality. Playing here in the final against McEnroe was the realization of my dream. Playing on Wimbledon Center Court in front of millions is not just a tennis match, it's a place where you find out about yourself. What I found out was that choosing a dream carefully, pursuing it relentlessly, and then achieving it is what makes life worth living. The feeling is utterly indescribable. So in the hope that something I've said tonight has given you something to consider or think about, I'd like to quickly summarize what I think might be of use. Firstly, about the environment, I'm saying that a poor environment will guarantee you never reach your ceiling of potential. Look for an environment with like-minded people, you must look forward to spending time within it. It's got to be enjoyable, otherwise it's not a good environment. The prevailing ethos has to be one of excellence, not mediocrity. Uh, in a work environment, ask yourself, is this an environment where hard work, initiative and creativity are go and going above and beyond are recognized and rewarded? If not, my advice is to look elsewhere. Uh, seek out the very best in your field. There are good reasons why they're the best. They can do things others aren't capable of. Uh, the higher up you go in any field, the fewer people there are who are capable of doing what they do. There's, these are people from whom you learn the most. Surround yourself with them. Opportunities. In my case, they weren't accidents. When I look back at my opportunities, they arose because I'd achieved results, I'd earned my credentials, and I'd established a reputation. For example, as a 15-year-old, I beat some of New Zealand's top men. I was then invited to play with Arnie and Brian. I won Judy Wilder, invited by the world's leading coach, Harry Hopman, as a result, trained at the world's leading academy. Early on, I adopted a strong work ethic, which meant that I was always sought out to practice with the world's best. And later on in my coaching career, because of the reputation I'd established, I was asked by both Ivan Lennon and John McEnroe to coach them. And then a word about my observations on confidence. And that is a necessary ingredient if you are on the path to where you want to get to. You've got to be confident, because if you're lacking confidence, it's not going to happen. And my take on it is that confidence comes from competence. It comes from mastering a subject. 
So as I did with Brian and Ani, I looked very carefully at what made them what they were. I looked at what made the champions what they were and then tried to use that information, uh, evaluate and respond to it accordingly. Uh, so it, you learn from the best and to become confident, you need to master your subject and you need to examine ruthlessly what that requires. It's not just a wonder, like tennis for example, it's not just hitting a tennis ball. It's mastering the technique and the strategy and the mental side of it, the physical side of it, and all the subcategories that are subsumed by those major categories. That's how it's done, and that applies in any field. Uh, I want to give you some examples too of confidence as they applied the very best in the history of tennis. Here's an example with Connors. Before he won any Grand Slam tournament, he was asked by the world's press what he thought his chances were at the US Open. Mind you, he'd never won a Grand Slam before. And it was a room like this, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, it's like this. There's 127 losers here in me. That's, that's confidence. I'll give you an example of somebody else, Jim Courier, when he was 18 years old, a future number one in the world, a number one in the world in the making, and he was in Stockholm, of all places. And Stockholm is an indoor tournament, a major indoor tournament, and practice time is very valuable because it's limited. He had booked his practice time and the minute that he was eligible to go out on the court, he walked out and one of the players who'd never seen him before said, who the hell are you? Almost, it was a little more profane than that. And he said, my name's Jim Currier, I'm 18 years old and you're looking at a future number one in the world. That's confidence from an 18 year old. Ivan Lendl, when asked what he was gonna be in the future when he was a teenager, he had no hesitation in telling you that he was gonna be number one in the world. I had dinner, uh, dinner with Boris Becker three years after he won Wimbledon. And I said to him, Boris, I said, how did you feel going into Wimbledon the first year when you were 17 and you won it? And he said, Chris, I knew I was going to win it. I knew it. He just said it very matter-of-factly. Now, it sounds arrogant, and that was my first reaction to it, but then you examine it. They were all responses to questions. This was not somebody going around telling everybody what they were going to be. These were people that genuinely believed what was in store for them. It, just an unbelievable, unshakable confidence. It got them, it, it, it's, they developed it, but it separated them out. And they were answering questions. They weren't going around blowing their own trumpet. They were asked, they just gave a matter of fact answer. That's how they were. I found that fascinating. Uh, and, uh, and as far as goal setting goes, I'm changing subject here, but um, in the interest of time, I don't want to miss the rocket launch. Um, <laughs> project as far into the future as you can and make the goals as specific as you can. Uh, here's an example. Like when I'm coaching, I'll say to somebody, look, your serve's got to be bigger. You're just not going to survive. You're going to get killed on the return. And, they, and, and then if I left it that vague, sure, they might make this serve bigger, but if I concretize it for them and say, all right, let's, let's give yourself a specific goal. Let's say a year down the track, let's make your serve 12 miles an hour faster. And okay, well, yeah, I can do that, but that's pretty tough. Wait a minute, let's break it down. What if we say a mile an hour a month? Now we've got a time frame and we've got specifics. Boy, a mile an hour a month doesn't seem that bad. Well, how about we break that up into weeks? How about a quarter of a mile an hour a week? It's like, oh, I didn't think of it like that. There's a relationship between the short term and their alignment with the long term. And you can apply that you know, with, with major goals, but there it is in a very micro form. And it works. If you measure it, you've got time frames, it's more real. You need evidence that you're on track. The short term gives that to you. Uh, so make the goals as specific as you can and give yourself time frames. It gives you clarity. When you have long term goals, it integrates your day and your months and your years. You're now purposeful. 
you're not aimless, you're not subject to the arbitrary whim of whatever current comes along to sweep you away. You're immune from that. Know where you're going. Um, and that goal achievement is always an ongoing dynamic process. It's never static. But most of all, it's goal achievement that gives you happiness. It really is. And the greater the goal that is achieved, the happier it makes you feel. And on that note, I'd like to thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to me tonight. It's been an honor and a privilege to be invited to speak. Um, I want to congratulate Xavier on the great work that he's doing. We've had a dinner a couple of times together, and he is somebody very special. I'd like to personally thank you for that work, Xavier, and thank you for listening to me.